I draw your attention to the first quote in your quotes and notes there at the top of that page, that insert in your bulletin. It's a quote from Charles Reich, his book, The Greening of America. This is what he wrote. Modern living has obliterated peace, locality, and neighborhood and given us the anonymous separateness of our existence. The family, the most basic social system, has been ruthlessly stripped to its functional essentials. Friendship has been coated over with a layer of impenetrable artificiality as men strive to live roles designed for them. Protocol, competition, hostility, and fear have replaced the warmth of the circle of affection which might sustain man against a hostile environment. America has become one vast, terrifying anti-community. I remember reading some years ago uh, of a heat wave that struck the city of Chicago. Now, in order for the, uh, the, the, the sadness that was an outworking of that to really land here, you need to understand something of uh, how it used to be in, in the old city of Chicago. It used to be that in the, the brutal heat of summer, that families of all ages, all walks of life were known to open their windows, open their doors, spend the evening out there on the porch, or maybe even go down to the lakeside. That's where you'd get some relief from the heat. No longer. No longer. No, now things are such that all windows are locked, all doors are locked, and on occasion you read terrible stories of members of the elderly community who, because they are so terrorized by and in those communities, die of sweltering heat because they do not have air conditioning. We've lost a sense of community in this culture. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to go a little further and say we've also lost even a sense of our need of community in this culture. And with that, I would add, we have lost something of our humanity in this culture. I don't have a text. Normally at this point, those of you who have been a part of you know, these services, you're waiting, what's he going to read? Where's he going? It's not Matthew. Um, this is Community Group Sunday. This is a more of a topical message. So I'm not going to read a text right here at this point. I just want to stop and pray, and then we're going to dive in. I do have a few places that I want to take you in the scriptures uh, along the lines of this theme. So let's uh, bow, if you would, with me in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we need your help. We need your help. Um, uh, while maybe the quote from Charles Reich and uh, what I just recounted as uh, the pain and suffering at many levels of, of, a, of an anecdote there in summers in Chicago. Maybe that doesn't really land on us very well, but we, we, are, we, we live in that same world. We breathe that same air. Uh, we are infected with the same virus, and uh, we need help. Uh, we need help. In fact, it's so, um, our, our, our condition and need is so dire we can't even see the degree to which we need help in this. Uh, so we ask for your mercy, and we ask that you would expand our vision uh, for what you have created us for and what you intend for us, especially as your followers, as your disciples. What does that mean when we're speaking of uh, relationship? In your name we pray. Amen. Community is worth pursuing. 
I was reading just a little while ago, um, last few days, in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's the last chapter of the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. The context is, in case you don't know, Paul is in a, in Roman, in a Roman jail cell. He is awaiting his execution. And from what we know, actually, that's exactly what happened, likely beheaded uh, sometime near thereafter. He is feeling isolated. It's very clear from you, you re- reading what he's saying. He's feeling uh, isolated and alone, uh, cut off from the churches that he had founded and had visited over the course of the years and ministered to and with. Uh, He's feeling cut off from people that he knew and he loved. And you're reading there in that last chapter, those last paragraphs, and he makes a very simple threefold request of of Timothy. And the the request is, um, oh, that you would bring me or send me the books, the parchment. Uh, that um, I would have something to read, uh, that you would bring me uh, the cloak because I'm so cold, and would you come? I need people, I need company because I'm so very lonely. Um, it's interesting when you think about it. Um, he's specifically asking even for Timothy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was longing not just for the coming of Jesus, but the coming of Timothy. And those two longings are not incompatible. Not in any way at all. In fact, human friendship and relationship is is one of God's many good gifts to us as, as human beings. So, to acknowledge that we're bored and need books to acknowledge that we're cold and comfortable and need a cloak, to acknowledge that our spirits are lonely and need companionship is not unspiritual. It is deeply human. It is deeply real. We need community. And it is well worth our pursuing. This is Community Group Sunday. It's the Sunday... Once a year, where we kind of take a step back from everything that we're doing and bring heightened focus and attention to that particular ministry and why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Uh, Now, you you might wonder, if you haven't already caught on something of why we've been trying to explain something of that, well, why are we doing it? You can ask the children. Ask the children here who have been a part of the classes just this morning. You know, what was chiefly the thing that they heard, I trust, if you ask the question the right way anyway, that you'll hear in response to, what did you learn about this morning? Hopefully, I think it will be, the answer is going to be Jesus. Jesus is the reason that we have community group ministry. That's what ties that together. That's what impels that, forces it uh, forward, or if we can put maybe a little bit more of a point on it, the pattern of Jesus. The pattern of Jesus, uh, the clear pattern of Jesus, impels us, drives us, um, towards intentionally pursuing vibrant community. The pattern of Jesus drives us, impels us, towards intentionally pursuing vibrant community, and in particular, two things. When I say the pattern of Jesus, what I mean by that, these two Things And it's there in, in your outline, these simple two points. One, the person of Jesus, who he is, and the prayer of Jesus that we see there in the gospel. So those two things I want to just spend a little bit of time looking at uh, together for a few minutes here this morning. So first, the person 
of Jesus as part of that overall pattern driving us towards intentionally pursuing vibrant community. The person of Jesus. Jesus is the, you shouldn't be too surprised to hear me say this, is the only one in the universe whoever has been and ever will be rightfully described as fully God and fully man. At the same time, not not like you know a little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit then, a little bit now, but all at the same time now, fully God and and fully man. Uh, he fully God. Think with me, the, Jesus of Nazareth, the one the gospel writers are are, are speaking of, uh, is has all the attributes of God, is worthy of all the names of God, due to all all the praise of God. He does the works of God. And in fact, is due all the worship of God. Jesus. Don't miss what I'm saying here, the significance of that. Jesus. Jesus is fully God. His divinity. His place within the Trinity. He is the second person in the Trinity. Uh, part of the, the glory, the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of God is He has never been alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from all eternity, before anything, before, in fact, it's kind of an oxymoronic way to say this, before there was time, you have an eternally shared life within the Godhead. Now, what does that mean for us? And it's already been alluded to here this, this morning a couple of times. I just want to hit it a little harder. What does that mean for us, given that the, the Bible is very clear that we have been made, every human being that ever has walked the face of this earth is made in the image according to the likeness of that God. That triune God existing with an eternally shared life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are made in, in His image according to His likeness. It, it, it means at least this much. We as his image bearers have been made to represent him on this earth and to reflect something of what he is like. Or if I can put it that way, given the, the fact that we are made in this relational God, it means that a human being who is living a who is thriving, a human being who is thriving while living in isolation is an oxymoron. You can't have that, thriving and living in isolation. It doesn't happen. According to design, it can't happen. Or if I can just be a little bit more blunt, that's to live a less than human life, a less than fulfilled life. Why is it in our penal system, by the way, that one of the worst things that you can do to a prisoner is put them where? Solitary confinement. Because the idea there is to twist, turn those screws all the harder on that man or woman. Jesus in his divinity, in who he is as God, and given that we are made in his image, points us towards the necessity of pursuing intentionally, because it won't happen by itself, vibrant community. But he is not just fully God, he is fully man. And his humanity pushes us and points us in the same direction. 
You think in terms of his Jesus during the course of his earthly ministry, his time walking on this earth, leaving footprints where he, he went, Jesus of Nazareth, his struggle and his pain, the things that he suffered. And we think most usually chiefly in terms of his temptation in the wilderness on the eve of his, his ministry and then uh, towards the end, uh, his crucifixion. And we would rightly, of course, our minds would rightly go to those places when we think of his need and suffering and that which he endured. But there's another time, another instance that we ought to be thinking about, and that is on the eve of his execution. He knows what's coming. In the Garden of Gethsemane, and the isolation at the horizontal level that he is already feeling. Now, if, turn with me to Matthew 26. You knew I'd have to go to Matthew somehow uh, in this. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. I want to read to you this account of Jesus' agony there in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he's feeling on the horizontal level this isolation. Matthew 26, just verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay. There in the garden, to be sure, he is uh, looking, looking for and longing for his Father, if there be any way to spare him that cup, knowing all that that cup entailed. But at the same time, you can't miss this. He is looking for and longing for his friends to stand with him. And the pain that he is enduring in that they can't and won't, when you understand the heaviness of that, is hard for us to read. There is profound suffering there. That Jesus, the sinless Son of Man, is feeling. So I, I tried to make the, a moment ago the connection. If, if we are made in, in according to this image, according to his likeness, that demands something in terms of our humanity, what that means. The same applies over here. If, if Jesus... Jesus, the one that Isaiah, centuries before, describes as the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, if Jesus, in his sinless humanity, desperately needed companionship and fellowship and relationship, how much more do we? Do you, do you see the connection there? 
if him, how much more so us? And if we are being remade into his image according to his likeness, being made more like Jesus, then what does that tell us in terms of the, the, the shape that our relationship should be taking? and the community that we should be pursuing and fostering. The person of Jesus tells us something, drives us towards, impels us towards, if we will take this seriously, the need to pursue intentionally, intentionally vibrant community. Paul, the same one that I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul, mentioned his letter there, 2 Timothy, in that last uh, chapter, that last letter. But elsewhere, years before, Paul wrote profoundly in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to turn there with me now, go ahead. I'm going to read just a little snippet there. It's after the Gospels and after Acts and after Romans. You, you bump into 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to take you to chapter 12 in a minute. But, but, but Paul is writing to this, this splintered church, this uh, beat-up group of people, and they're beat up because they've been beating each other up. Um, and uh, just failing to grapple and understand the ramifications of the, the faith that they profess. And Paul is calling them to account on this. And one of the images that he uses in the course of that letter in chapter 12 is, is this idea of the body, of a human body. And, and that being one entity made up of constituent interdependent parts that cannot live in isolation of, of one another without you know, just completely utter dysfunction. So he, he, I'll just read just a little bit of this. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, picking up in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. I mean, Paul, Paul, if you keep reading through the course of, of chapter 12, it's very clear that Paul starts to make two points, and that is, one, no one within the body of Christ is expendable. The, the body cannot do without any of its members. So no one is expendable. And secondly, no one can go it alone. So no individual part can live without the body, and no body can live without the parts. It's, it's, it's both. It's, it's, it's reciprocal. It's, it's this interdependency. You start thinking about this and what Paul is, just that sim simple image, but it is so profound in its implications for us. I say it's so simple. I say it's so profound. And yet, I know for myself, and I cannot help but that for all of us here, that to really grapple with the reality of what Paul is saying here and that what the, the person of Jesus demands, demands a paradigm shift for every one of us in this room. Every single one of us. To really grapple and live out in any faithful way at all the implications of what we're looking at here. Demands a, just a paradigm shift for us. For at least two reasons. One, the culture in which we live. Western society in the 21st century demands, harps on, insists on, supports, and presses us towards individualism in ways completely unlike any other period of history and so many other cultures on this, this globe right now. We have so little understanding of, a, of corporate identity. 
individualism. That's one, one factor. The other, though, is not that it's not just the root in our culture, but the root in our hearts. Pride. My pride that deceives me into believing that I don't need you. And you don't need me. So it's not just individualism. But it's pride. And so to see this, to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, this is what Jesus intends for us. This is what the church looks like. This is what it means like to, for human flourishing to take place. This is what it means to live, to, to live for me and for others to, to, to live. And this is what I have to be about and encouraging. For me to, to say that with any honesty and any earnestness demands a paradigm shift that I could see that. I mean, it's a call to prayer. That my eyes, that your eyes, that our eyes, that our hearts could be renewed in that way is a call to prayer. It's a paradigm shift and they're in a call to pray. Because this is worth pursuing. But we need new eyes in order to strive after it. In order to even begin to make those first steps. In order to strive, we have to have new eyes. Which then takes me to this next thing. Not just the, the person of Jesus, this is the second point. The prayer of Jesus. And here I'll, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. John 17 is what's oftentimes referred to as the high priestly prayer. And this was also, I mentioned Gethsemane, this was prayed on the, on the night before Jesus' betrayal. And you think, she, he knows that's coming. This is not catching him off guard or by surprise in any way at all. So, you know, if you know what's coming, your execution the next day, the focus of your prayer is laser in terms of your highest priorities and your, your deepest passions are going to be coming out in those moments. And in John 17, we have a record of what Jesus prayed. And some of you may know, it's, it's three parts. I'm, I'm going to read the third part. But the, the first part, Jesus is praying for himself. The second part, he's praying for his followers then. And thirdly, he's praying for his followers that would follow after, meaning us. If you want to know how, what Jesus is praying for you, you don't have far to look. John 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you loved, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the, the, the requests are, are, are plain. The idea, again, but the, the, the profundity of this is so striking. He is praying for what? The realization of this unity that, that he has created, but the realization of it. So it's not theoretical, it's actual. Taking place in the context of ordinary 
relationships like the people in this room between us, that that community and unity and something radical and beautiful such that outside of Him it would never, could not, we could not dream of it happening. But something new, something new, the gospel taking root and taking effect in our lives and the realization of that and pattern upon, this is crazy, pattern upon and grounded upon the Trinity itself. You see that there in what we just read. The Trinity, that, that eternally shared life that we, we were talking about just a little while ago. And what does Jesus have in mind? What is his purpose? What is he, what, for what reason? What, what is the goal? What is the, the, the end game, I guess you could say, with, with this? Well, at least these two things. And the first one is, is subtle and it's implied. But certainly partly that the Father may be glorified. I mean, that's, that's Jesus' heartbeat. That the Father may be glorified. Something like what you see in the Lord's Prayer, like what we see in, in, in uh, Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. Hallowed be your name, meaning may you be honored, may you be trusted, may uh, you be loved, may you be obeyed, may you be revered, may you be served in the way that you are due. Hallowed be your name. You, oh my Father. That's at least partly it, but the, the, it's not just that. And you see that here. That's the part that's implied. Jesus is desire that his Father be glorified, but his desire that the world would see something. His desire that the world would know something. The reality of the gospel through a living, vibrant testimony of a living, vibrant community of people changed, transformed by the wondrous reality that the Father sent the Son, and in fact the gospel is true. And the way those people love each other is living evidence, daily testimony of that gospel. Then indeed the kingdom has come and is coming. That's his heart. That's his desire that the world would know. That's his prayer. Which again impels us, shows us this call to community. Um, I'm not going to do any eclipse illustrations for you today. Um, that would just overshadow, a little pun there, overshadow, ha, see, you like that, you like that? Worked on that all week, um, uh, where I want to go today, but um, I am going to mention the moon, I'm going to mention the moon, and some of you have used, heard me use an analogy like this before, by calling your attention back to the Apollo space program, in particular Apollo 8, Apollo 8, it was December of 1968, Apollo 8 was the first just revolutionary. I mean, what a moment in human history. The first time a manned spacecraft left the orbit of the Earth. That's a big deal. Not only left the orbit of the Earth, but then entered lunar orbit and then returned safely home. December 1968. I'll read to you... Uh, the description of the astronauts as they were looking down upon the lunar surface and for the first time human eyes were able to make out detail on that surface in ways never before. Not a telescope, not binoculars, not any aid whatsoever, just their own eyes. This is what they described as what they saw. Essentially gray, no color. Like plaster of Paris or a sort of grayish beach sand. It looks like a vast 
lonely, forbidding place, an expanse of nothing, clouds of pumice stone. The vast loneliness is awe-inspiring and it makes you realize just what you have back there on earth. There is a beauty and a barrenness to the moon. It is not in any way like the earth with all of its color. All that color on, on one sphere. On one sphere. The moon, if I can I want to use two different terms there, I, want, I hope you can see the difference because it's a critical difference between these two terms. The moon is uniformity. Earth is unity. This is undifferentiated sameness over here. Uniformity. And this is variety and diversity, but bound up as one whole. Now those two things, literally and metaphorically, are worlds apart. Unity and uniformity. And Jesus prays not for uniformity, but unity. If you will, metaphorically speaking, something with, with a variety of different types of terrain and temperature, climate zones, and, and humidity levels and aridity levels and, and uh, soil types and, and all different kinds of things. But it, on one sphere, in one orbit, run with me here, stay with me, metaphorically, that's what he lived, partly at least, partly at least, what he lived and died for. That that would be real. Not uniformity. Unity. Unity. Among his people. Now why is this important to stress and really press into? I'm going to be, I want to say something about the chaos in the news over the last few days and how this impacts that. Okay? Uniformity is the best we can do outside of the gospel. That's all we can muster. Uniformity. You must look just like this. The same. You must look the same, think the same, act the same, speak the same, vote the same, march the same. Uniformity. That's the best that we're ever going to come up with outside of the gospel. Do that, then we'll accept you, we won't reject you, we won't beat you, we won't revile you. Outside of the gospel, that's the best we're going to come up with. Sameness. Undifferentiated sameness. That is not unity. That is a crass, cowardly caricature. That is a cheap knockoff of the real thing. Uniformity. That's what leads to Charlottesville. That's what leads to the chaos and carnage on the streets where you have blind hatred on one side and hateful responses to the hatred on the other side. Both wrong. But that's the best we can do outside of the gospel. Bland Uniformity, fear, insecurity, cringing 
in the face of, any possibility of, variety, diversity, unity. Unity. And the thing is, we were made for so much more. We were made for so, so much more. And this world is crying out to see so much more. You can see that. You can hear that in the news as people are grasping at explanations as to why this happened and how to make things better. And there's like glimpses of truth and glimmers of sanity here, but no one's putting it together. The whole picture. Here it is. Who and what we've been made for. And this then is it's a reminder. It's a tragic reminder. Oh, that it didn't have to happen. But Charlottesville is a clarion call of a reminder, a call to the church to live out what we've been made for. Unity, community, relationship. Not Christianity light. Not surfacy relationships where we'll only go but so far. Eclipse, weather, Sports, your kids, my kids, you know, what you ate. But going somewhere deeper, somewhere where life is, somewhere where the heart is. Talking about where, what I am and what you are and what's going on there. So this is a, a, de, this is a demand then to be willing to resist. Resist that stubborn pull back into that. And then can I just say also, not just a, a, a commitment to resist that pull, but a willingness to expect more because of who's praying for us. Right? Who wants this? More than you and I ever will. Who wants this? Who wants this for us? The Lord Himself. The Lord Jesus Himself. This clear pattern of his is exactly what points us in this direction. Let me end with this. My own personal experience, if I may. Um, a story. So, many years ago, I was a, a junior at Virginia Tech. Uh, it was a troubling, tumultuous time, fall of my third year there. Uh, set into motion by the tragic accident of the death of a dear friend of mine, one of my roommates. And uh, that spun up a lot of different things for me and our, the other remaining roommates in this apartment. But we decided in short, not too long after that, that we were going to commit one day a week to spending time, just the three of us, in Bible study and prayer. And I cannot tell you the transformative effect that had taking this place, that I mean, literally, that place of pain and transforming it, turning it into an oasis. I was changed. We were changed. None of us left that experience, the whole thing, as we were before. And I remember it, at the end of that school year, in my old 65 Mustang, driving out of Blacksburg, driving out of Montgomery County, on out into the Shenandoah Valley, morning. 
and it had no, it wasn't I had an unhappy home life. You know, if this is being recorded, mom and dad, please, it's not it's not that. Um, I'm mourning because I know what I'm leaving. I had tasted something, something of the richness of what we're being promised and what's being held out for us by the Lord Himself. I had tasted something of that and it was coming, I felt like it was coming to an end and I was grieving. I tasted something for the first time of what I knew I'd been made for. Fellowship, relationship, community. That's you. That's all of us. That's what we've been made for. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to stand up here and lie and tell you that our community group ministry is the only way you'll ever come to know that. I'm not going to say that. I will say it's a tested and proven way of going about it. So I hope your imagination is stirred up a little bit. I hope your vision is enlarged a little bit. And I want to pray for us all now. Let's pray. Lord, may we believe the very things that we've been uh, reading of and even singing of this morning. Uh, whatever our experience has ever been in the church or with other believers, however pleasant or unpleasant they may have been in our past, we ask that you would help us to see right on through that, past that, over that, beyond that, know that the gospel of the kingdom is real. The future has indeed invaded the present. We ask that you'd give us eyes for this and a willingness to press with all our effort, all our energy, that where we need to repent and confess and forgive, that you would help us to do that, that you would grant to us in your grace and your mercy a humility that embraces your purposes for us and one of your chief means of growing us. We pray this in your name. Amen.